It's the Law and Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the hard issues where law and business intersect to help you understand your business's legal obligations better. Anthony's law practice is focused on trademark, copyright, other intellectual property, and advertising and promotion law. You can contact him at anthony at vernalaw.com and at 212-729-5651. And now, the Law and Business Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law and Business Podcast. I'm Anthony Verna. I've recorded this episode with Darren Jenkins at the Citizen M Hotel right in the lobby uh, where Darren was working that day. We talked about film and entrepreneurial issues in film. I uh, understand that there will be plenty of ambient noise in the background. I certainly hope you'll enjoy listening to this episode. It's full of wonderful substance and wonderful tips for the entrepreneur. Thank you. Welcome to the Lawn Business Podcast. I am with Darren Jenkins. How are you doing, Darren? Hey, what's going on today? Uh, it's a work day, except we're podcasting instead. <laughs> anyway, Darren, why don't I'll let you plug away, and you can tell everybody who you are, what you do, besides the fact that I know you do everything. Why, why? <laughs> so, I am a entrepreneur in New York City who is the founder of CPR, which is kind of a networking collective for uh, entrepreneurs. Um, and I'm also the co-founder of the New York Film Loft, um, which is a co-working space and an incubator for film and television and digital projects. So, in the film and television business, you're dealing with a lot of people who have a dream, have an idea, yep. probably don't have money. All of them have money. Can you? <laughs> I got, I got, you know, just so this, just this morning, you know, I got at least three or four emails from different um, people asking me either about money or distribution or you know something related to the um, process of trying to get their film and television projects done. So. Yeah, I mean, no one has money, but everyone has money. It's kind of a very strange situation right now. From, from my particular standpoint, when somebody comes to me with a dream, yep. a dream. <laughs> and, it's a, and, and, and we're talking film and television, yep. I would say my, my first step is asking if you're protected. Sure. And we do that from from an intellectual property standpoint. What what's your first question to somebody who has the dream but maybe not the money? Oh wow! My first question. Uh, I mean, I come from I come from kind of the creative slash business end of the model, right? So my first question is to kind of so I, I stand between them, right, and the money and the distribution. Mm-hmm. So the money people are ask ask me certain things that I need to kind of vet, and then the distribution people have what they need, right? So my question is kind of like, uh, all right, is it viable? Mm-hmm. It's almost I'm almost like the Mark Cuban <laughs> of film, right? I mean, I sit there and I have to kind of poke holes in this thing that they want to produce um, to kind of see what's viable. Because unfortunately, right. these days, this, you know, the digital world is such that 
it's very easy to make um, content now. Right. So everyone's doing it. <laughs> yes. Talented like, or not, they're doing it. Yes, well, like, like we're doing right now. Right. So when somebody comes to you, do you help them set up a business plan? I tell, I tell you what, my first thing is for me to tell them that they need to be, um, they can't, my first, my first advice to them is to tell them they need to be business people before creators. Um, I'm glad I'm not the only one telling creative people that. No, I mean, I, so I, you know, I was at SSSW this past uh, month, and, uh, you know, I, so we're listening in on Christine Fashan, um, of Killer Films. Sure. Um, we listen to her keynote, and she says a lot of similar things where, you know, filmmakers need to be more than just creative people. And they have to be more about this, you know, this thing. But I tell them, yeah, you've got to be, you've got to come at this from a business side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to get your money right, your legal things right. Everything needs to be tight. I mean, you can't just go in with a, say, hey, I got this great idea, because, you know, right now, there's so many people trying to get business to get deals that the more that you have done before you come to people like me, the better off. And more importantly, it protects you because there's nothing stopping. I mean, you know, back in Hollywood, Hollywood days, plenty of ideas were stolen simply yes. out of, you know, hey, yeah, sure, I'll take this. Right. Well, I would say, I would say there, there are two main issues there. Uh, one, is there something protectable? And under copyright law, as we know, ideas themselves are not protectable. And you need to take that idea, fix it on a medium, and then there's somewhere in between the original idea and what's been fixed upon a medium that's protectable. The other issue that, that I certainly have seen is that maybe there aren't a lot of original ideas out there, and, and I don't want to necessarily criticize those those. You know, creative people, but under copyright law, you need to, to make sure that that what's there is original, or at least the expression is original. Well, I mean, that brings you. So you're completely correct. I think Hollywood has gotten to a point where they're regurgitating a lot of content, regardless <laughs> of whether it's been stuff that's been done here in the states or whether it's been done abroad. Mm-hmm. It's really a huge thing that's been done. A lot of people are taking content from Europe and Asia, and they're just re- right. they're just retooling it, you know. Mm-hmm. Or they're buying the rights to different books, or they're not even buying the rights; they're just reading stories. Sure. And, and you know, okay, it's easy enough for you to say <laughs> you you came with this idea, and maybe in the back of your mind, you really did. Mm-hmm. It was this. It was something you saw as a child. It just stuck there. 30 years later, you think it's an original idea, you don't do your research. You don't do, or you go to, you know, copywriting, and they're like, eh. <laughs> what? What do you mean? Well, it's not original, dude. It's not original. Right. And that's Hollywood right now. I mean, that's, there's probably, I guess, a fair amount of content that is just, that doesn't get produced simply because of that situation. Sure. You know, and it's funny that, that you talked that you talked about doing a search. Right. Because in my law practice, 
when some when a company comes to me with a new trademark, so so something that relating back to the goods and services, the first thing we do is a trademark search. On the copyright side of life, in the artistic business, we don't really think of copyright searches. Yet a colleague of mine sent me an email asking me about tools to do a copyright search. And you're going to do a copyright search in order to make sure that that even if, if your idea might not be the most original idea in the world, at the very least is your expression um, original or at least original to the best that you can look up. Um, and the important part there is, is one, is there something that the artist or the creator of this work can protect? And two, is, is the creator of this work going to be sued? For infringement. You know what? I, that's a good question. A good question. And I, this is something probably you answer this. You know, because <laughs> I can't. But I would, I, you know, in this day and age, people, everyone's suing everybody. Yes. Whether it's Hollywood or music world, or, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, it, you have. It's just so crazy how like you can come up with this idea for something. And go forward with it, make money with it, right. go more big. And the second you start making money off of it, someone out of the blue shows up. Either because you didn't do enough due diligence, or, mm-hmm. or maybe just honestly, it's so close to someone else's birth that, you know, so people come out of the woodwork and like, hey, this looks exactly like a screenplay I sent to so and so. Right. Like, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, and you, I mean, it happened to a friend of mine about uh, a few years ago. I was trying to help a friend of mine produce a film. Right. She bought the rights to the books. So she had the rights. That was all good for her mm-hmm. and all that. And of course, um, she started to get into producing and uh, she brought a woman, another woman onto the project who was a producer. Okay. The producer, the, that person, uh, then started pulling in content for the film unbeknownst to my friend um, that was not hers. Okay. And so it caused a ripple effect. And the ripple effect was one, the person who owned the right to the book was unhappy. Now the person sold her the right to the book for a dollar. So she really wanted to think that... You know, you get what you pay for as well. Well, the thing was that after she found out that this was all going on, she decided, well, when the rights are up next year, I'm not going to be selling that to And then now she's also in legal hell because now she's trying to also uh, extricate this uh, woman off the project. Um, So it's like this whole shamash, shamash, smash of stuff. And, you know, I, I just... You know, and it, I, I didn't want to say it, but when she first came to me with the project, which was, you know, years ago, that was one of the first things I said to her. I said, be careful. Don't, you know, be careful when you bring a new project. Be careful how you handle the, the, your con- the contracts and, and between all these entities that you're bringing onto the project. And also, don't, Maintain creative control of what you're doing because yes. this is going to this could happen. And, and, and part of that is making sure that the contracts with the team, for lack of a better word, with the team members, 
are vetted, reviewed, and state what you want to state. If, if, if one person is to have creative control, the contracts with anybody else on the team have to state who the owner of the copyright is. It's partially what we would call a work-for-hire agreement. And also what the pecking order is. I mean, that's, that's very important, I would, I would, I would say. And, and, you know, you know, the film world and the entrepreneurial world is very similar. There's really very little difference. And uh, I was just having this conversation about a certain person that I know and their, um, their startup company mm-hmm. and how they're kind of like, they, so they pulled some friends into them as their partners, per right. se. But there's no partnership agreements in place. There's no... There's no incorporation at all. If there is, um, those people outside of him don't have any stake in it whatsoever. So, and I said to him, I'm like, so, and then he was surprised because he's like, well, they're not really So what's the incentive? Engaged. You're not engaged. Exactly. So what's the incentive? So what's in it for them? Seriously. Like, if I was them, I would not be doing anything because, one, I don't have a position. Two, I'm not legally part of the company. Right. Um, there's no, there's been no predefined, you know, parameters of what the agreement's going to be between you when you start making money. And you right. Make, and this company's already making money, which means, you know. I once had a client who wanted to put together an animation, uh, animated show, and. I, I found somebody who was interested, at, at the very least, in helping to find an investor if the investment wasn't right for him. And eventually he pulls me aside long after um, the company was no longer a client. And he said to me, Anthony, you know, if you were to take the owner's, you know, the, the organizational chart, the owner of the company wanted to be in every single box of the organizational <laughs> chart. And it doesn't, it doesn't quite work that way. You don't get a project off the ground when, you know, unless you have the defined roles of different people in that project. I would just guess he'd be really busy doing everything, too. So there's that. You know what I mean? I mean, a lot of people don't understand. I think when you start a business, regardless of whether you're a creative person or you're starting a medical startup or an educational startup or whatever, a lot of people don't understand that the the legal stuff, right, the the contracts, the copyrights, the trademarks, all these things are put in place as a benefit to you. It's not... Yeah, it's, it's a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. I get it. you got to fill out all these things. Right. You may have to, depending on how complex things are, hire a lawyer to kind of help sure. you navigate that water. I get all that. And it's not money that you anticipate being sexy to spend on the business. Right. But it is far less work to do that than to have to deal with the aftermath of not having any of that stuff done. Um, come tax time, it's a huge benefit because God knows, I mean, if you end up owing down the road, don't you want to separate your money from your company's money? Because if you go into fault, you end up having to, they come after 
you. They're not coming after no. this entity. They're coming after your pockets. IRS has the ability to go straight to the business owners. Yes. Yes. So, you know, I tell And I'm not a tax lawyer, but yeah. I know that. <laughs> right. So, you know, but people, it's not sexy. That's what it is. Right. Entrepreneurship has always been sold as a sexy way of making money. It only gets sexy if you do it right. If you do it the proper way, if you do all your due diligence and get the copyrights that you need, mm-hmm. get the trademarks you need, and make sure your intellectual property is secured properly, that's when it gets sexy. Because then you're bulletproof. Right. Or at least as close as you can get. Right? There, there is no such thing as 100%, as no. we know. No. Let, let me, let, let's, take this, let's take this back into the creative sure. realm for a second just to kind of make um, a bit of a point because we had in the music realm copyright issues. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and we will all the time. There's no doubt about that. But we have, um, we have uh, Sam Smith saw, you know, paying, basically paying um, Tom Petty and, and his, uh, you know, co-songwriter uh, 6% of, of, uh, of royalties we have the the blurred lines lawsuit. Do you have any thoughts on either of those situations as to how similar they sounded to your ears? <laughs> you know what? Look, I come from the old school of music. I, I grew up in the Motown time, right? The seventies, and you know Marvin Gaye and stuff. So, you know, G- give me the four chords, throw in a minor yeah. seven in there, and and so, a lot of this isn't all that. When I hear different anyway. songs today. Um, like um, you can't help but hear some of the influences mm-hmm. from those from those times. So, sure. And so, for me, it, it goes back to what I was saying before, where you maybe you had this idea because I get it. You're in the music, you're in the studio, and you're laying down tracks, and right. everything is flowing, right? And you're like, yeah, this is original. <laughs> but in the back of your mind, it's not. Maybe you did hear, or maybe you didn't. I don't know, because unless we're in the studio, we don't know what your intentions were. <laughs> but that is not really, you're not getting sued by your, for your intention. You're no, sued and, for the actual Yes, and, 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 that's something, and that's something that a lot of people miss. The, the history of that actually comes from George Harrison. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay, you're familiar with, with My Sweet Lord mm-hmm. and the lawsuit involved there. Ultimately, going up to the Supreme Court and the lawyers at every stage... George Harrison's attorneys stated there was no intent to copy another song. Right. He grew up hearing uh, the the allegedly infringed song. He he knew uh, that it existed, but when he wrote it, it was it was unintentional. And and ultimately, there is no intent for copyright infringement. Right. You have to sit there and do. It, it's a fact based issue every single time, right. and and that's the case. Every single time. <laughs> There's this. You know, they have like, so, you know, the only time I can see where you can, you can sit there and say there was an intent to it is in cases where, um, you know, back, you know, maybe as early as the 80s, um, DJs would use uh, samples from different songs. Those are intentions, right? Because yeah. they are literally taking pieces out of a song and the Beastie Boys license to ill would, would never have been made today. Exactly. So that's the only way I can actually say, okay, there was an intent here to use right. someone else's music 
without permission. I agree. And that happened. That happened. I mean, I, God knows, 70s and 80s, probably that was, I don't know, maybe about <laughs> third but, but, you know, and it happened in, fi in film as well. Um, yes. Lucas Arts back in the day sued the creators of Battlestar Galactica, and I forget the name of the production company right. at the time. But the the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is in California, went went plot by plot point by plot point in its decision. It didn't really make any any new law, but it went plot point by plot point talking about how similar the, the original Battlestar Galactica TV show was to Star Wars, right. and, that, and, and at that point, we're only talking about the first movie, right. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and basically stated that there was at least some kind of copying. Uh, on the same token, when you sit there and look at that today, you state, well, gee, isn't this a lot of science fiction having some of these similar tropes? And or a lot of westerns having these similar tropes, and and at some point, where's the line? And and ultimately, sometimes you have to kind of shrug your shoulders, and and say, do your best to create something original. Well, Indiana Jones, right? Indiana Jones was a tribute, yes, to all of the cliffhangers back in the fifties. Yes, right. If you can't, and earlier, yeah, and earlier. And you, if you can't find similarities in any of those films, some of those, you're not looking hard enough, right? And same, same, I mean, we could, we could do this all day. Right. Um, and so I, I wonder if it, it, I think some of it, and this is stupid, I guess, is that it's ego-based in a lot of it, right? Because Sometimes. I know for me, let's just say tomorrow I create the world's, like the, I create a science fiction movie that is considered one of the best of all time, right? It sells, you know, $2 billion at the box office, and I'm just amazed, right. right? Ten years from now, some young filmmaker who watched, who was like eight, nine now, mm -hmm. is 18, he writes a film as a tribute to the film that I did now. And who takes literal pieces out of the film, maybe maybe it's not a science fiction film, maybe it's a drama, right? Do I sue him? I could, probably. I probably could say, hey, 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 you're, you're stealing from my film. As an ego, I could do that. I could completely right. say, you're, I don't like this, and I want a piece of what you've just created. Or I could just say, you know what, it's a tribute, I get it, whatever. You, you know, there's a part here where it, it's, it takes careful consideration with counsel in order to discuss what's infringement, what's a tribute or a pastiche, what is blatantly ripping off. And, and, and there's... There are fine lines between all of that. Is that, I mean, like, and is it, is part of that conversation, like, is it go back, it goes back to intent again, right? It goes back to intent in the sense that if you're having this conversation with your, your attorneys, right? And, okay, you, so he releases this film, and you see him on all the talk shows and in the press talking about, right. this is mine, it's all mine, I've never, nothing, 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 you know, oh, I'm brilliant, I'm brilliant. 
And then you find out, but you, I mean, you can literally pull pieces out. Right. If I'm, if I'm your legal representation, if I'm your business people, I go, yeah, you have to do something about that. And the reason why is because you, you know, as much as I, no one wants to be, no, I, I, I don't want to be sued. Um, <laughs> Nobody and, does. And no one wants, I don't want to be in court, but, but. There has to be a line that has to be drawn when it comes to claiming the the creative intent of, of, mm -hmm. of, of a project. Sure. You know what I mean? And that, unfortunately, when it comes to that level, it comes down to, I think, the legal process has to be played right. out somewhere now. You, you know, and, and to go back to the Blurred Lines case, mm -hmm. one of the issues that... I think hurt the case mm -hmm. is that what was filed, and I'm going to get a little legal procedural wonky here, and 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 there's a part of me that doesn't like doing that when, when, when I do a podcast, but mm -hmm. in this particular case, the plaintiff was, were the plaintiffs were Farrell and Robin Thicke. As the writers, they filed the suit asking the court for what we would call a declaratory judgment, basically stating, the, basically asking the court to, to write a piece of paper that says no copyright infringement exists, <laughs> and and you do that when you when you think you're actually going to be a defendant, and you try to circumvent the the, the process. I've I've only had one of those particular situations. And I've thought about filing another one because it's rare to, to, to ask a court for a, de a declaration. Right. And I don't like it because it's barely worth the paper it's written on. Right. And two, I think it backfires. I was in a lawsuit where a client was the recipient, was the defendant officially, and the plaintiff filed a declaratory, declaratory judgment. Right. Eventually it was settled. Right. But I. I think it was settled because uh, eventually the plaintiff said, gee, it, our claims don't necessarily um, you know, come out, and I don't think we'll be keeping the copyrights. I think the copyrights right. would have been transferred anyway. Right. So when the settlement was made, the copyrights were transferred to my client. But the declaratory judgment, that particular legal maneuver, tends to fail, I think, because it, it has an easy way of backfiring. Is it like a, it's almost like a, it's almost like a, you know. You're asking the court to say we did nothing. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, like, it's like a Jedi mind trick. This, this is not the droid you're looking for. It's like, dude, seriously? It's a, it's, it's a sneaky way of declaring your guilt, but telling them we're guilty, but say we're not. Really? <laughs> like any person, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but if someone said that to me in court, even I would be like, really? <laughs> Seriously? Um, no, I, I yeah. totally get what you're saying. Yeah. So, so I, you know, those particular issues really require a long time with counsel in order to determine what the right move is. I'm curious how you advise people who come to you with the dream on how to set a budget. Because we're, we're, we're talking legal issues mm -hmm. 
at the moment, but there are practical issues such as writing, filming, um, distribution. I mean, besides besides all of the, the, the legal issues, right. you know, whether the projects sag after, <laughs> and those contracts are a nightmare. Not And not just because they're typed up in eight-point font, but, you know... <laughs> see that. But... How, how do you advise anybody with a dream to make that dream reality, especially when you have to create the budget? Um, well, the budget's kind of like this thing um, for a film. I mean, because it's a little different depending on the project. If it's right. a film or a television project or digital stuff, but if it's a film, kind of a project. Um, the one thing about filmmakers are, um, is that filmmakers are unrealistic sometimes in their financial projections. Um, I find that true for many startups. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, it's a very similar world. Um, the difference being is, is that with filmmakers, um, you know, when you're trying to get investment from different projects, different entities, especially when you start getting into like guys with like VCs or something like that or private hedge funds or those type things, um, they require a lot more information about the finances of what, you, what you're trying to do. You know, so understanding your finances and what your budget is, where things are going and allocated to, um, is really important. Obviously, you you can't you can't just go, hey, uh, I need a hundred thousand dollars, and they're like, for what? You're like, oh, just for some film and stuff. <laughs> you know, you have got to be able to break it down everywhere where everything is going, and um, you know, and that. You know, you, you know, there's some filmmakers who have been very good at doing it themselves. I mean, they've done it a long time, right. and they're, they're familiar with how to, you know, really break down a budget line by line and stuff. Uh, when you're starting now, um, you don't probably have that knowledge, um, so you're really kind of fishing around trying to figure out um, if I don't have knowledge, who can give me the knowledge? Right. Is it going to be an accountant? Is it going to be my lawyer? Is it going to be? <laughs> you'd be surprised how many people will, you know, think it's, you know, their accountant. I said, I, I tell them this. I tell them it's really kind of a combination. I mean, you, I think it really depends. I think you should have a lawyer around because um, they'll, especially a good entertainment lawyer, understands um, a lot of stuff that they've seen. Um, and then a CPA who's familiar with... Uh, financial breakdowns uh, obviously is handy but having somebody in your team who has done it before is good mm -hmm. um, because uh, you know because you'll get a, the experience in the advice experience. and what's you know, the one thing a lot of people don't talk about is so a lot of filmmakers are going to the crowdfunding platforms to kind of find money because everybody thinks that's the magic bullet it is a magic bullet that can kill you as well. Because a lot of people don't seem to get that. At the end of the day, when you've crowdfunded this $100,000, guess what? There's these guys, you can call them thugs, you can call them <laughs> the men in black, but they're called the IRS, and they're coming for you. And right. you have to you, be prepared for that. You need a, you need a seat. 
and this is something I tell all entrepreneurs, and I just told somebody this um, last week, and I'm, I'm actually going to be speaking with this entrepreneur uh, again with my with with my partner. We're going to have a, a phone conference because it's somebody who has never set up a company before, and I said you need a CPA and you need a tax lawyer. I said. I will gladly help you with your intellectual property, and I will gladly help you with your advertising concerns, because you're going to, going to have both in this particular in this in this particular business. As a, but if you've never set up a business before, you need a CPA, and you need and you you should probably, you know, if you've never and this person had never used a CPA before, I said so. I got a CPA for you to talk to. If you don't like him, we got others. Right. I said, I know a tax lawyer. Right. I said, you know, you should speak to the tax lawyer. And it's actually an, uh, a business that's going to have inventory. So while, again, I'm not a corporate lawyer and, and I'm not a tax lawyer, I said, what you should do is talk to the tax lawyer about a C corporation instead of an S corporation when your business has to hold inventory. I said, I, I don't know the the manipulations, but I know that there are manipulations and differences right. between the two. And you know, the, this person said, I, I don't know what a C corp is, and I said, that's why yeah. that's why they're here. I just had this conversation with my partner actually. We were talking about that, and uh, she's like, she, so she's like, so what's the difference between an LLC? S Corp and a C Corp. <laughs> and I said, well, the difference between all of them is how is the is the how protected you're going to be as a as an individual, right? I mean, because that's ultimately your goal is to kind of create a separation, a line of separation yes. between you. But it's it's also it's also how the partners are taxed, right? right. How, how the partners are allowed to pull money right. out as well. I, I mean, there's so many so. That, and that goes back to knowing what kind of business structure you're going to have. Because what works for this company is not going to work for you. Right. Um, and also, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I mean, we get into about where you're going to be forming this company from. Uh, you know, again, like you said, if you're going to have... I was, I was at an event. I was at an event earlier this week. Right. And somebody there said, always form a Delaware LLC, or always form a Delaware corporation. Someone said that to me as well. And I, I, I'm not a Delaware attorney. Right. I know Delaware has, has corporate-friendly laws. Right. But if, you're, if you've got zero clients, and this is, this is something I say, you know, if you're going to speak to a tax lawyer, and you should always speak to a tax right, lawyer right. and a Probably corporate form and a corporate formation attorney, right. not just us here on the, on the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> but the questions to ask are: If I have zero customers in Delaware, and therefore I'm never going to visit Delaware, and I'm going to have a New York City office, right. is it really beneficial What's to form? A Delaware corporation or a Delaware LLC, and and I'm not saying there aren't any, but that's something to that's something to really take into consideration because if your business address is in the state of New York, you can be hauled into court in the state of New York, 
regardless of, right. of where your corporation is formed. Exactly. And, and I'll tell you what, I've got a client with a really bizarre situation that, that obviously I can't go into depth about, but predecessor company. So there was a predecessor company. That predecessor went bankrupt. My client is the successor. Predecessor company was a New York corporation with a New Jersey address. And when a financing agreement was filed, the financing company filed under the Uniform Commercial Code of New York in the state of New York for all of the the product that the predecessor company had, all of the equipment to make the product, all of the intellectual property of the company, and they did it in New York. And that was a proper filing because even though the company was seated, seating, sitting in New Jersey, excuse me, it was a New York corporation. And therefore, the filing in New York was proper. Now, if it were a New Jersey company and it, with a New Jersey address, then that wouldn't have been the case. But it was a New York company with a New Jersey address, and so the filing in New York was proper. You know, you know and, and so that's an issue that a lot of, gee, like nobody thinks, gee, what if my company goes bankrupt? Right. And, and nobody thinks that, and nobody should. But you should prepare and think about what are the, the consequences, positive consequences and negative consequences. And when we're talking in the creative industry, bankruptcy and intellectual property in, the creative, indus- in creative industries are painful to think about because a lot of creditors don't know what to do with your intellectual property you know if your company goes bankrupt auction that's really it I mean, <laughs> I, I, yeah I mean so it's my understanding that there are a number of co-working environments mm-hmm. in the city who actually did the LLC in Delaware for okay whatever reasons I don't know. Right. Um, and, and, and again, I'm not being critical of, of companies no. that do that. I, I totally don't. You know, yeah. look, when I was looking to incorporate, that was the, one of the things I you know, did my research. Right. And that, you know, I talked to a few people, and a few people said, you should incorporate in Delaware. You should incorporate in Delaware. I'm like, for what? <laughs> it's, not, it's not like Delaware is Amsterdam. They're not, <laughs> they don't have an extradition. This entreaty that they're not going to get me for. I mean, so I was just like, after you know, while we were doing this investigation of like whether we should do that or not, that was my first question. I'm like, what's the benefit? I didn't see anything that was so radically different that would have kept me from saying. The, the nice part about New York State is the five boroughs. And the five boroughs have a lot of commercial litigation. So through the years, New York has developed statutes that I won't say are similar to Delaware's, but New York has a lot of um, business-friendly corporate statutes. I will say this, though. New York State has a lot of terrible state judges. And and that's something... You didn't do that for me. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I try to be in federal court when I can because in, in New York State... The federal the federal judges are a lot better, and and I. Well, yes, and I hope nobody who's listening ever finds out. But um, 
but those are again those are the considerations that 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 you need to that you that a lot of especially creative businesses I think don't don't necessarily think about. And the, and the, it's a little different sometimes for filmmakers, right? Because filmmakers are always doing stuff not necessarily locale, you know. <laughs> yes. So you know they're doing stuff in all of countries and other places and stuff. So and, and then there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of filmmakers that have that are not incorporated in them at right. all. Now I don't know how that's going to work out for them in the end. <laughs> Maybe it's great. Maybe they save some money up front. I don't know. Maybe they're waiting for them to make their first million dollar check. <laughs> Mistake, but whatever. But there, yeah, there's a lot of filmmakers that are probably or a lot of creators. I shouldn't say filmmakers. Right. Artists, writers, what have you. My thing is, look, if you're going to be, if you're an individual who's going to be making more than $5,000 in a year um, doing whatever it is the hell you think you're going to be doing as a business, you should be incredible. It just pays. I think it. You know, from all for all types of reasons, it, it just pays to do it. Um, do things the right way. Um, yeah, it's you know the great thing. You know, so I, we met because we've come to a couple of my events and, and stuff, and we've spoken at my events, which is awesome, of course. And you've provided some awesome knowledge to, to my, my attendees, awesome. And you know, so people like yourself and other lawyers, we the great thing about our events is that we get a little bit of everything. Right. We do get, we get trademark attorneys, we get tax attorneys, we get all kinds of attorneys who come um, because, I don't even think they come because they're looking for clients. They come because they enjoy meeting new people and stuff. But the great thing is, is that if you're a creative person or an entrepreneur or something, if you come to our events, uh, you know, you can't say to the the support system is there regardless oh, yeah. of who the service provider is. Yeah. The, the, the support system is there, and and, well, and somebody both pro bono places. I mean, for the reduced Sure. Right. In in New York City, there's the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. Um, you know, and 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 a lot of those attorneys will work pro bono on a lot of these smaller uh, situations. I think you know, regardless of how you do it, you should do it. Um, get a good one, one that you're comfortable with, and somebody you trust, to kind of give you, because obviously they're giving you information that's going to impact your career and your business. Um, you know, I, that's one thing I, I piece of advice right. I tell people all the time. Regardless of whether it's a legal legal advice or creative advice or something, I always tell people, you know, don't settle for the first person if it's not somebody you feel comfortable with. I think we were just having that conversation where you just have to have a, you have a good feeling in your gut about who you work with. Right. And, uh, you know, for, for a creative person, you know, you know, this is, we don't have a lot of knowledge about these things that we're trying to do sometimes. And we just need somebody who's more smart. I say, get somebody smarter than you. And don't pretend that you're smart because you're not. I'm not smart. And I trust me, I try to find as many smart, smarter people than me as possible. <laughs> Because you know, seriously, I'm trying not. I'm, trying, I'm like, I want to be dumb. I don't have no problem with being dumb at all. Seriously. So, if you're here in this podcast, seriously, and you're an entrepreneur or creative, play stupid. Seriously, play stupid. Go into a go against. Speak to somebody and, and don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask. Be 
even the dumbest questions because the, the, the those questions will save you a lot of money in the long run, a lot of pain and headache. I want to move on to getting eyeballs, getting ears. Sure. Because that part's, that part's the tough part. Because mm-hmm. you know, in today's world, a lot of musicians can you know, get their band together. Maybe it costs 5000 to put a five-song uh, EP together. Yep. And, and, and you know, for a lot of creatives, that, that's a hard number to, to spend but you have to spend that in order to sell something in order whether you're selling a CD or selling it on iTunes um, what you know or on some other website or, or trying to get you, you've got to think about this in a business sense and put all of all of these numbers together and, and create a business so how do you tell people to get eyeballs to their their film or, or content because sometimes you're just going to put it on YouTube. Um, and and how, you get, how do you tell musicians to, to, to get those, those ears as well? I know that's, that, that's a loaded question that we could probably sit here for months distilling, but... So, so you know, one of the things, one of the many things that I do is also, I actually also do some artist representation uh, management. Um, there's a band uh, called 11th Ward I'm managing right now. produced their first EP last summer. Um... And so, so creatives suck. And I'm you, okay, they do. Especially musicians. Musicians are the worst. Um, guys, we love you, but, but... I love you guys. Don't get me wrong. But you are the worst. And you guys, they know. So, and the reason why is this. Because music, you know, musicians... So musicians, artists, um, actors... Filmmakers, right? Let's just deal with those three verticals right there, right? Musicians are different. Musicians don't want to deal with any of the mishmash that comes with promotion. They don't, they don't, they would rather not. Um, and they don't know how. They're not going to sit there and figure out a social media plan. They're not going to try to come up with a marketing plan, a brand identity campaign. They're not going to think about how best to. Distribute something, right. I, and I'll give you a case of a, uh, an example. There was a guy. There's a guy. O- only I, one example. Please, <laughs> I'd be here all day. You'd be like, "All right, Dan, it's nothing." Um, there's a guy who's very talented um, producer. He's a okay. pro- he produces a lot of um, sports content. He produces um, pretty, a lot of different things. Um, one of the things he produces is, uh, is, is actually uh, this TV show on YouTube. For fashion and great content, fantastic. It was a fashion mm-hmm. week. Um, did some fantastic stuff. Great interviews, sliced and diced and edited. Right. Shot. Beautiful. Um, um, he produced like I think about seven or eight, uh, no, uh, four or five episodes. So he put the first one up on YouTube and, and you know let us let people know people are now wow cool promote it promote it. So, you know, about three weeks go by, and I hadn't seen a second episode yet. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So I, we emailed him and said, hey, man, um, when's the second episode coming out? He goes, oh, it already came out. I go, what? What do you mean? He goes, I put it out. I put the second, the third one, and the fourth one already out. I said, you put them out together? He goes, yeah. I go, why? <laughs> He's like, I don't know. 
Now, you don't see anything wrong with that, but it is because think of it. So, look, Netflix can do that. Netflix right. can go. I can put and put twelve episodes together. Boom! Drop them. And right. And, and you may want to do that if you have a podcast, right. so that I, you know, so that iTunes has multiple downloads right. when somebody comes in. Right. But, but when you're doing, when you're an entity that's an unknown quantity of sorts, right, and you're trying to kind of build buzz, like sometimes, so this. You know, there are different types of marketing models, right? You could do all, you know, and I think Netflix does a, man, a fantastic job of what they do as far as, I mean, I'm a big fan of it all one season. Only bad thing about it is I watch it all and then I get, I'm fiending for more. You know, and you're doing that at 3.30 in the morning. Exactly. When I should be asleep. Um, but I told them, you're not Netflix, man. You can't, that's, you don't have enough traction behind it. So that if everybody watches it all at once, they're not going to sit there like hunger for more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've got to take a different role. And so he didn't understand that. Um, when you're trying, so for film, you know, getting eyes on is changed, right? Back in the day, it was film festivals, four wall deals, um, whatever you could get to get in the theaters, you know? Right hard as hell to get in the theater, right? Today, I can shoot something in about 10 minutes and have it up on YouTube in 20 minutes, and ta-da, I'm a filmmaker. Yeah, but who's watching it? Who's watching it? So then you what, what's, what's, what's the What's the, um, the ratio, like only... One percent of of YouTube videos are actually producing uh, money for the creator. Pretty much, I mean, pretty I, much. I, I mean, maybe maybe I'm a little off on that number. Well, maybe maybe yeah. something like five percent. But even if but even but, if it's ten percent, even if it was ten percent, right? That number is still. I mean, okay, yes, YouTube has a massive amount of content on there. So ten percent of that is really a high number if you really think about it. But it's not it's not a realistic like you can't keep up that kind of not everybody can do it basically right. you know what I mean it's and when they do do it it is um, it's not it, it's either something that's either overnight and it's like something that you just can't replicate or it's been a very calculated campaign there's no middle ground really. there's no body that says that says well I just Put a video of my dog up there, and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna tell, ten, tell my friends, and it's just gonna grow from there. Unless it's something, like I said, something just like completely ridiculous. And I mean, I, I don't know if the statistics on within that ten or you know, five percent sure. of what of that is actually um, what I call um, brand produced content. You know what I mean? I'd say a whole lot of that is brand produced content. Yeah, and so that. I I mean, even even if even if the video is of is of a musician or a band in the studio recording the song, right? I I mean, isn't that brand content? Absolutely. And that's why I said it's not so. It's not something that easily replicatable unless you've got a 
you know, two million dollar marketing budget behind you <laughs> in a, in a distribution platform right. who's helping you promote it, you know. So YouTube has their new um, their new studio here in New York City, and um, they're you know for YouTubers who are you know hot to try. Very hard to get into it. You have to have an X number of views to be part of that platform, right. you know, which is great. But realistically, and for most people, to get that kind of buzz on YouTube, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's like South by Southwest. I, you know, I was considering doing an event here in South by, right? Because that's what I do. I do events, right? Of course. Um, but it would have made no sense from here. And the reason why is because there's so much stuff going on at South by that I would have been a speck of dust on a big black wall. Sure. I went to South by uh, not this year, but last year. Okay. And I actually was in Austin for uh, for a case, so I... I yeah, so, so I did double duty. And I found it to be so noisy. Right? That, that yes, it, even going out and, and shaking hands, right. trying to put an event, if you're small, it, it, is it possible? It, right, because you are that, that, that speck of dust. So I mean, that's, that's exactly what you face being a person on YouTube. That's exactly, probably times 10 or 100. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, what, I don't know what the numbers of events that hold down there. Maybe it's a few hundred on YouTube. We're talking. Two, three billion, maybe sure. more. I'm not yeah. sure exactly. Probably yeah. much more. So you're a speck of dust on a black wall, and that wall <laughs> is floating out in the universe. Okay. Um, and, and the only way for you to get any real attention is if you start a black hole. Like, right. You know what I mean? So, sure. Um, so, you know, to go back to your original question, how do you get views and how do you get eyes on? Um, Two ways, the three to three ways, three of the best ways that I find. One has to do with money. Uh, the first way is crowdfunding. A lot of people underestimate the fact that crowdfunding is not crowdfunding is about money, but it's not about money. It's about marketing. It really is. I mean, if you bid on Kickstarter and do well, you will have done very well because of the amount of people going through that site and. You know, it's just, it, it's really a marketing thing. Sure. Um, the second way is to luck into um, meeting someone <laughs> who... Um, I hope people aren't building their business plans. Get lucky. <laughs> yeah. It was a uh, 5,000 for marketing, 10,000 for getting lucky. Um, you've got to, you know... It, then the second part of that is to try to get some kind of digital distribution. Um, there are a ton of platforms online now that you can pay to get distributed, you know. Um, and then you've got companies like Orchard that does a lot of digital distribution. They, and they you know, if you, you know, go to the film festivals, get your stuff, get into like some of the major festivals. Sure. Orchard is normally there. Looking, they were at South by. They they're going to be they'll be at Tribeca. They go to Sunday, mm -hmm. so they go to different places and mm -hmm. they try to gather and stuff. And there are other content providers that do the same thing. Uh, Orchard was just bought by Sony, so I'm not sure how that's going to change things for them. But 
It may make things better or worse. Right. Um, and then the third way, well, the third way is split into a couple things. And this is where it gets really cool and interesting for filmmakers. Digital. Digital, and when I say digital, I mean webisodes, I mean branded content, I mean DOB um, on your own. There's, the digital platform is going to be very interesting in the next five years. Television companies, film companies right now are all trying to make a play for digital marketing, digital branded content. Um, Lionsgate just announced their new digital platform. Right. Uh, Christine Bajan, who I mentioned earlier, merged with uh, Killer Con uh, with uh, I can't remember the company they merged with, but they're now they merged sure. with a digital media company. They're now instead of Killer Films or Killer Content, right? Which is producing some like the new online um, mm -hmm. video. Show for comedians. Sure, and 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 you know just just to kind of look back at this in in the last let's call it eight years. I mean, this isn't necessarily new either. I mean, you have the founder of Vimeo who created Next New Networks, mm -hmm. and and I actually forget what happened with Next New Networks, but but I mean that's an early that was an early adopter business plan, yeah. which is what everybody here is 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 doing now that it's accepted. Well, I think what's happened is, is that I think you're seeing this on the on the, the television and the TV side. TV side's starting to become even more aggressive about it. Um, is that um, they're looking for new revenue streams, um, and so they're starting to see this. Things are starting to inch together. We're advertising. They're starting to inch together with uh, film and. Which is, which is how it used to be. I mean, when television was first launched, I mean, every that's why they're called soap operas. And but even the variety shows weren't weren't uh, weren't hosted by somebody. It was presented by the sponsor. It was the the blah blah. blah. Presented by right exactly exactly. So, so none of this is is necessarily new. Everything told is new. <laughs> it's just put into a different package. Yes. And and in today's world, if there's some advertising and creative content that that blends together, I mean we'll we could talk about advertising when we won't <laughs> right now until until we're blue in the face. But when those merge and, and you have a smaller audience, what's what's nice is that the advertiser gets a targeted niche audience. Mm -hmm. There's an attention span that's gathered that's not done in, in either, you know, instances. I mean, to go really macro with this, Super Bowl purchase is good because it's it's an efficient buy for eyeballs. But a lot of these smaller stations, for lack of a better phrase, all of these channels that that a, a content creator can put out on the web has the attention span of the people who are watching it. Exactly, and that's really the value, right? I mean, you're you're really getting the, the targeted audience. That and what it also does is it takes that annoying factor out of it, right? Because you know, for years, people sat online and they had to be annoyed by pop-ups, annoyed <laughs> by popovers, and and all these pop-unders, and and, and and all these different annoying yes. versions of content. 
and commercials. Oh, my commercials, commercials interrupting my TV show. Right. Now, it's not. You know why? Because it is your TV show. It's part of your TV show. It's presented, and it's presented in such a way that you probably don't even know it's there anymore. You know? But it's there. Sure. And, you know, it, it's, and, you know, I, I give BMW a lot of credit, right? You remember years ago when they started doing those long form commercials uh, where it was like these, um, they would have like these uh, famous film directors who would direct these long form commercials. Yes, I do. And it was like all these stars that would be in it. Those set the stage. American Express did the same thing. Yes. As yes. well. Them, Apple, Sony, um, BMW, I think Panasonic might have been doing it as well. They they started to set the stage because now people started to say, oh, this commercial is not so bad now. Ooh, interesting. Yes. You know. Now you fast forward, and now you've got you've got. This is kind of where I came in eleven years ago to the industry, where I started to see say, hey, I have lots of filmmaker friends, lots of videographers, lots of creators. I also work in the digital publishing environment, mm. Wall Streets, the, the Disney's, the Reuters, you know, all these guys who are here talking behind the scenes going, you know, user con generated content, user generated content. We really want user generated content, <laughs> right? And these guys had no idea what was going on. They were like, yeah, we're still going to be filming this. Right. But Christine said it, she said it, uh, it's South by, I've been saying it for a long time as well, is that filmmakers, Filmmakers who understand how to take advantage of the opportunities that are being presented right now by not just doing, not just taking their trying to be stubborn and say I'm just going to film, right. but taking this the films, the webisodes, whatever they're creating, and leveraging it toward the publishing side of things sure. into um, branded content stuff is going to go. There's a guy who um, he he uh, he, he is. What I call YouTube broker. Okay. <laughs> what he does is he goes and he finds talent on YouTube. Oh. You know, creative content stuff. Uh, sure. And he says, this is interesting. It's getting lots of views, blah, blah, blah. Let me get you some money. Let me make some money for you. Mm -hmm. He then takes that content and brings it to brands and says, this is up your alley. You should brand it. Boom. They make a deal. This guy, they brand that channel. They get money, they get content, it's a happy marriage. Right. Understood. That's, that is going to be the, the paradigm for the next five, six years. You watch. Got people, I agree. You know, that's a, that, that's, so if you ask me where people are going to get eyes, that's where they're going to get eyes. Online is going to be where filmmakers and content creators can get eyes on some of this content that they not necessarily meaning for a theatrical release use that as a branding mechanism for themselves so that way when they go to investment they can say hey look at all the views that I'm getting all my content online with my film all these people once I promote to them they're going to be in the theaters watching it give me two million dollars right that's 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 where that's what filmmakers are going to need to do so since we need to, to, to wrap up sure. at at this point because we're at everybody's attention span, I think, <laughs> at the end of it. I, I'd say, one, if you're going to, to dream 
you're allowed to dream and dream big. Dream big. Uh, make sure your practical issues are settled because that's your foundation. Make sure your legal issues are taken care of, whether it's intellectual property, corporate formation, tax issues, contracts. Make get, sure. Get out the network. If you don't know people that can help you with that information, because networking will help you find those people. It will help you find all the legal people, the branding people, the marketing people, all the right. things that you need. Networking is the key. I agree wholeheartedly. Darren, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. <laughs> we'll do it again. All I right. Hope. Take care. <laughs>